right, good morning. Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 8. That is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. Uh, we're continuing our series titled, Who We Are. And the name of this, uh, or rather the, the aim of this short series, uh, is to be an encouragement and, and reminder uh, of who we are, why this congregation exists, and what we are to proclaim and live. And the subject we come to this morning is that of the Word of God, right? or, or the, the instrument of the Word. Uh, we are a church that is radically committed to using God's ordained means, His chosen instruments, to do the work that He calls us to do. Let me say it again. Here, here's the, the theme of this sermon. We are a church that is radically committed to using God's ordained means, his chosen instruments, to do the work that he calls us to do. You know, there, there are many congregations that have many different ideas about what the church should do. Right? Many congregations do many different things in the name of church growth, remaining, quote, relevant in the 21st century, um, attracting people, making uh, church services more captivating and having an authentic worship experience. You ever read that on a church website? Cringy stuff. Uh, many, many churches have, have um, m- they do many things in the name of keeping children interested and engaged in the faith, uh, assisting spiritual growth of Christians and getting people to, quote, make a decision for Christ. Right? They, they will try to create, as I just said, an authentic worship experience by using loud, repetitive music and a light show in a darkly lit room because that's how you engage people. That used to be this church, by the way. Uh, I, I'm not necessarily pointing fingers in a, in a mean-spirited way. Right? This hits us, too. But again, they'll try to have some kind of uh, emotional manipulation, atmospheric experience. They'll have skits and plays during the worship service because they believe that that will communicate the truth more effectively than a sermon. Uh, they'll, they'll refuse to preach doctrine and will instead have preachers sit at a table and tell stories that will just really hit home with people and make them more relevant. Um, they'll refuse to take communion regularly because it's too churchy and will alienate new visitors They'll do silly sermon series like at the movies instead of preaching through portions of scripture because preaching through books of the Bible is boring. They'll have youth groups that are essentially little parties each week with a Bible verse read at the end because that's how you engage the children. Right? And they'll turn their pulpit uh, area, you've seen this I'm sure, turning the pulpit area into a basketball court or a horse ring or a stage show or some other gimmick that's meant to wow the visitors and get them to come back. Right? Or doing outreach that is mainly just making friends and merely doing good works instead of preaching the gospel to unbelievers because they believe if you offend sinners that they will certainly never come to your church. There are all kinds of ideas for what the church should be doing and how we should be doing things. That's my point that I'm getting at here. There are books, magazines, websites, and classes that you can check out that will give you all kinds of gimmicks and ideas for what you should do to grow your church and, and, and its ministries and keep people engaged. I get emails for it all the time. Right? It, there, this is a multi-million dollar market for this kind of stuff. 
and professing evangelical Christians buy into it without ever questioning its validity according to God. But the real question is, are those things biblical? Or to put it another way, are those things, and by things I mean those techniques, those events, all that stuff, are those means, are those means what God has ordained that his church should use? Or, we could put it this way, our question should be this, what has God given to his people that we are to use to do what he has commanded us to do? Right? He's commanded us uh, as his church to make disciples, to lead people to Christ for salvation, uh, to, to, to help one another to grow into spiritual maturity. He, he's called us to instruct our children in the faith and help one another to persevere to the end. That's a tall order. He's called us to that and, and more. But what instruments has God given to his church to do all of this work? What has God promised to bless? What has he given us to use? The answer is this. Tell you on the front end. The word and the sacraments. That's what God has given to us. By the way, sacraments is just a fancy word for baptism and the Lord's Supper. The word and the sacraments. Those are God's appointed means for his church. Those are the things, or again, theological language. These are the instruments that God has given to his people by which we are to do all that he has commanded us to do. He has given us his word, water, bread, and wine. And he's given us those things with his almighty blessing that they will accomplish, or rather he will accomplish his work through them. Let's go one step further. Right now I don't have time to explain this. If you want to challenge this, I'll talk to you after the service is over. The sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are really just the word of God made visible to our senses. That's what the sacraments are. That's why you must receive them by faith, because they are a visible word. Keeping that in mind, then we can refine our answer even further. What means has God given us? He's given us his word. He's given us the word of God. That is his appointed means that the church is to use to accomplish the work of God. And that's what I aim to show you this morning from the word of God itself. So again, the church is to use the word of God to do the work of God. And it is the word alone that God has blessed and promised that he will use to accomplish all of his purposes in the church. And I'm going old school this morning. I'm going to use four headings. If you've ever read a Puritan sermon, that's how I'm doing it this morning. I'm going to show you this truth using four headings this morning. One, the permanence of the word. Heading number two, the power of the word. Heading number three, the sufficiency of the word. And heading number four, God's promise concerning his word. So that's where we're going this morning. And as with the last few weeks, uh, we'll be looking at many different portions of scripture to see these things. But we're going to be jumping off from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. Now, with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. 
and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our great God, we come before you and we humble ourselves now in recognition that we are too dull and too hard-hearted to understand and receive your word on our own. And so we humbly ask that you would have mercy upon us. By your spirit, make us glad receivers and understanders of your word. We can't do this on our own, so we ask that you would help us. As our Lord Jesus tells us, apart from you, we can do nothing. Apart from your grace, we are groping in the dark. So we ask that you would cause us to see truth this morning. Grant to us that we would delight in it. Grant that we would believe and submit to it. And help us to glory in all that you've said. We ask now that you would glorify yourself in your church through the preaching of your word. And we ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so we begin with our first heading, the permanence of the word. Uh, and we'll begin by considering the text that we just read. The last line, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Right, this is a very famous verse. Uh, but in the immediate context here in Isaiah, the Lord has been speaking through the prophet about future blessing and judgment. And the angelic voice that speaks in our text is saying that what God has said is certain and sure. What God has said is unchanging and permanent. God has said it, he has spoken, and so it is. When God speaks, what he says is set in stone. His word is not going anywhere, is what this text tells us. Everything else fades. Everything else withers, but not the word of God. His word endures. It is permanent. And what's said here about God's word to Isaiah is true of God's word in general. Why? Because God spoke it. If it comes from God, if it's his word, then this is true about it. He's not just talking about this one word. It's all the words that come from the mouth of God. So then this is true of the whole Bible because, as Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God. Think about this. Whenever you talk, you can put your hand in front of your mouth and feel the air come out. That's what Paul says scripture is. It's the very breath of God. God speaks, and then there is scripture. So again, all scripture proceeds from his mouth. So then God's word, all of it, all of the scriptures is certain, unchanging, and permanent. It endures. It will all stand forever. His threatenings, God's threatenings, his promises, his warnings, his graces, his blessings, laws, demands, declarations, all of his words are permanent. The word abides forever. And I'm going to labor to make this point. I know I keep saying similar things over and over, but I need you to see this. Our text says everything else fades and withers, but not his word. His word remains even if everything else is gone. Why? Because he remains when everything else is gone. And he stands behind his word. So again, since God is going nowhere, his word will not perish or fade. As Jesus says in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So please hear me. The book that you hold in your hand, 
is the only thing in this world that is not going anywhere. Men will come and go. Worldly wisdom will fluctuate and change. Have we not seen that already, even in some of us who have not been alive very long? Worldly wisdom fluctuates and changes. Kings and kingdoms will come and go. Ideas will come and go. Technology will come and go. Methods will come and go. Everything in this world has a shelf life, but the book in your hands is the one thing that will never change. It will outlast everything else. Our text tells us that men are unreliable, doesn't it? We're unreliable. We die. We fail. We cannot do all that we hope to do. Right? We, do. we do not have power. The text says all flesh is grass. Surely the people are grass. We perish when the Lord breathes upon us. We are weak and we are fading away. But in contrast to us, note the contrast. All the people are grass that withers and perishes and fades. But the word of our God stands forever. In contrast to us and our frailty, God's word is mighty. It endures. It does what God intends. And this should teach us something profoundly humbling. If we, or rather I should say since, we are frail and pass away, then surely our schemes and human wisdom and worldly ideas are just as frail and fallible. Why do I say that? Because they come from us. If all flesh is grass, then surely the thoughts of grass, right, is, is, or rather the thoughts of flesh is grass as well. Our thoughts, our ideas come from us, and we are frail, impotent, and fallible. So often, we put so much confidence in man-made ideas, especially when it comes to church life and ministry. Again, you should check out some of these books. They're awful. The ideas are dumb. They're corny. All right, just real quick. Anyone remember puppet ministry back in the 90s? As a six-year-old, I'm sitting here going, what are we doing? <laughs> right? Not that I was like a reformed Christian. I wasn't even converted at that point. But I'm like, is this the best idea? This is not cool. <laughs> right? Our ideas are not as good as we often think that they are, especially when it comes to church life and ministry. And we often don't take two minutes to consider the fr our own frailty and, again, fallibility of our own ideas. But this text confronts us and says, you are grass. And you fade away. You are powerless. It confronts us and then it redirects us. It teaches us to look away from ourselves and our abilities and our wisdom and look to what? The word. The word that stands forever. Brothers and sisters, church growth strategies are from men, so they will pass away and be weak. Silly ideas for church services are from men and not from God's word, and so they will pass away and be weak. Many ideas will come and go. Books will come and go. Again, corny ministry ideas will come and go. Church fads will come and go, but the word is what will last. So then, why have I labored to make this point? Let me propose a, or propose a question to you. In light of all of that, then, why wouldn't we invest in that which will never fade away? 
Why would we not devote ourselves with our whole hearts to the one thing that God has given that is powerful, unchanging, certain, sure, and permanent? Why would we look to man's fallible and weak ideas when we have the one thing that God himself says will never fail or pass away? Why would we spend our time on anything but the word? It is only a fool who will look to things other than the word of God to do God's work. Because as this text tells us, all other things are doomed to fade and pass away because they are from men. So then, at the outset, this is what I wanted to see just from the beginning before we get into some other stuff. We see that all flesh is grass and therefore all of our wisdom is grass, but the word is eternal. And so we ought to devote ourselves individually and as a congregation to using that which will stand forever rather than weak human means that will pass away. But now having seen the permanence of the word, we now turn to our second heading, the power of the word. And under this heading, I have three points that I want to make. The first, again, with regard to the power of the word, We see that the word is God's appointed means of conversion. The word is what converts sinners. In 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 23 through 25, we read, Peter writes, You have been born again. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter tells us that believers have been born again. And born again, what does that mean? It means that we've been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. We've been uh, given new life, given a new nature with new desires to believe God's word and to trust in Christ and to follow him wherever he leads us. Right? We have been forever changed from the enemies of God to the children of God who are loved by God. We've been born again. Brothers and sisters, this is the language of conversion. To be born again is to be converted to Christ. It's the language of being made new and brought to faith in Jesus Christ. And how did that happen? What does Peter say? Through the living and abiding word. Now that word through is a word of instrumentation, right? It, that is the word of God is what God used to bring about the new birth in each one of us. It was the chosen instrument, the chosen means of God to convert us. Nothing else is mentioned here. Just the word. So again, the word is the instrument God used to cause us to be born again. And we see James saying the same thing in his letter. James chapter 1, verse 18. He says, of his, that is God's, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Again, what do we see here? Who's the ultimate cause of our being born again? It's obviously God, right? It was by his will that we were brought forth. That's the language of giving life, being born, brought forth. It was God's doing, but how did God do it? James says, by the word of truth. And by, like the word through, is the language of instrumentation. Right? God gave us new life, spiritual life, by the means of the word. 
What this means so far for us is that God uses his word to grant spiritual life to sinners. Now, let's be clear here for a moment. He's God. And so God could choose to work apart from the word, but he doesn't. Right? Or at least, at the minimum, we can say, we are given no promise from him that he will work apart from his word. He's free to if he so chooses, but we are given no promise that he will work conversion apart from his word. God has chosen that it, that it will be through the declaration of his imperishable, mighty, abiding word that he will grant the new birth to sinners, revive their souls, and bring them to salvation through faith in Christ. So again, the word is God's appointed means for converting sinners. And just consider for a moment your own conversion, right? At least if you can, if you can remember it, unless God was so gracious to, to convert you to Christ whenever you were so young, which is what I hope happens to all of our kids, right? But a lot of us were converted in later years. But I can tell you what happened, regardless of how young or old you were, I can tell you what happened because the Bible tells me what happened. You heard the word of God declared to you in some way. Maybe you read a tract or a book or something online. Maybe you had a one-on-one conversation with a Christian who told you the truth. Maybe you went to a church sermon or service and heard a preacher preach like I am right now. Maybe you even heard a song right, that spoke about sin and a holy God and his wrath against sinners, but how God sent his son into the world to redeem sinners through his death and resurrection. But however it was that it happened, you heard the word of God declared to you. You had to have. You heard the word declared, and then what happened? God sovereignly worked through that word proclaimed, and he gave you new life, and he granted you faith, and he granted you repentance, and you believed upon Christ, and you were saved. God used his appointed means. He used his word to convert you. That's what he did to all of us. Right? So this shouldn't surprise you. God's means is his word. Delivery system might be different, might be, again, written word, preached word, personal conversations, street evangelism, whatever it is, but the common denominator is that the word of God is what went out. And that's how God converts people. But let me drive this home a little further by showing you three texts real quick from the book of Acts. I'm going to read them quickly. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. After establishing the first ever diaconate in the church, we read this. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. The deacons started doing their work so that the ministers, the apostles, could continue preaching. And what happened? The word continued to increase. The word went out, and disciples were multiplied in the city where the word was preached. Acts 12.24 says, But the word of God increased and multiplied. And there in Acts 12.24, I take multiplied here to mean that the word multiplied disciples, like in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Lastly, in Acts chapter 19, verse 20, we read, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevailed mightily. We see in these verses that it is wherever the word goes that disciples were being made. It is the word that multiplies believers. It is the word that prevails over unbelief and opposition. It is the word that is mighty. Is there anything else mentioned here? 
No. The Word did it. You'll, 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 you'll search in vain to see any mention of human skill, cunning ideas or methods. Even the Apostle Paul says, I am not a good speaker. But in my preaching, as you see what God is doing, you know that the power is from Him and not me. Human skill is never mentioned. It is God working through His Word to convert sinners to Christ. That's what we see all throughout Scripture. So again, hear me. You will search the Scriptures in vain to find another instrument through which God has promised to convert sinners. There isn't anything else. So what else are you going to try to use to grow the church with? Are you a fool? The Word proclaimed. That's what grows the church. That's what God has promised to bless. And so we are not, please hear me, we are not to assume to ourselves the right to add to what God has given to us. He calls the shots here, not us. So we are to use the word and the word alone to bring people to Christ. Secondly, with regard to the word being powerful, not only is it the means of conversion, but it is God's appointed means of sanctification. Acts chapter 20, verse 32 We read the Apostle Paul saying, And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. By the way, this is a classic text about the means of grace. If you want to study that idea, which I'm talking about the word being a means of grace is what I'm talking about. But in context here, the Apostle Paul, he's giving a farewell address to the elders of the church in Ephesus. And at nearly the end of his speech, Paul says, I commend you to the word of God, the word of his grace, the word of God's grace, God's word. And he tells them here that the word is to be central to their ministry. Why? Because it's able to build them up. It is able to build up the church. Paul is commending them. Here's the word. Use the word. Make the word primary in everything. That's what he's saying in this farewell address Why? Because this word is going to be the source of all true spiritual growth. And so he tells the elders in the church of Ephesus, take in the word, meditate upon it, make it central to everything that you do and proclaim it. Why? Because this is what God has given that will build up his church. We see this again in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. It's a pretty famous one. Peter says, like newborn infants... Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Peter is telling believers that we are to feed upon that which will increase our growth and maturity in the faith. And this, this picture is really vivid, right? Especially if you've had like, been around like a little baby. He's saying that just like a baby greedily feeds upon his mother's milk because he needs it to grow into maturity, we are to crave and feast upon that which will sustain and grow us. But what's he talking about? Well, in the context of Peter's letter, which I, I just read, uh, chapter 1, verses 23 through 25, about how we were born again through the imperishable and abiding word of God, It's that exact same, it's two verses later, he tells us to feed on the pure spiritual milk. What's he talking about? He's talking about the milk of the word, which is how the King James Version uh, translates. It's a paraphrase, but that's that's what the King James Version says. It's a good translation there. We are to continue feeding on the thing that gave us spiritual life at the beginning. It's the word. 
Why? Because that same word that calls us to be born again is the same word that's going to cause us to grow and sustain us throughout our life as Christians. So again, we're to feed on what is pure. And Psalm 19 verse 7 says, the law of the Lord is pure. Pure Christian teaching that's found only in Scripture. So then, the children of God, those whom God has given spiritual birth to, are to continually feed upon his word. We don't just need the word in the beginning. Right? We need it to grow. And then lastly with this point, consider 2 Timothy 3.16. Very famous text. We're going to look at it probably three more times. (laughs) Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Paul's telling Timothy that the Word of God, the Scriptures, when they are rightly handled and rightly proclaimed, they are profitable to teach us the truth about God and His ways and His will. They teach us. And it's profitable to reprove us. That's another word for rebuke. The word shows us our sin and where we fall short of how God demands us to live. But notice it doesn't just point out our errors, does it? Paul says, for reproof and for correction. It shows us the right way to go, the proper path to take. And it trains us in righteousness that we would learn. Again, slowly over time, training, being disciplined to live the way that God would have us. Brothers and sisters, this is sanctification. To be taught the truth. Have your error pointed out and then instructed in the proper way to go and encouraged in the right way to live. That's sanctification. That's the means of Christian growth. And Paul says that it comes through what? The word. It comes through the word. Brothers and sisters, the word as it is blessed by God, it works change in us slowly but surely because it's constantly reminding us of things and implanting the truth into our hearts. It's constantly declaring that God is the creator and we are the creature and so we owe him everything. It points out our sin and weakness and then it shows us a better way to go. It teaches us the mind of God that we would learn to love what he loves and hate what he hates and it trains us to think God's own thoughts after him. But more than that, the word constantly reminds us of the gospel. That we are more wretched and sinful than we could ever have imagined but that we're also more loved by God than we could have ever dared hope for. It reminds us that God gave his son to live and die for our sins. That Christ has fully satisfied the wrath of God for us. And that he was raised on the third day for our justification. The word that we receive constantly reminds us of our freedom from sin. It reminds us of what God has objectively done for us in Christ. That he's worked a true change in our hearts and made us new people through the blood of his son. And through all of this reminding and implanting the truth in our hearts, God works by his spirit. How? I don't know. He doesn't tell me how. He just tells me this is what he does. Right? And he stokes our affections. And he molds us, uh, rather our wills, to be made more like his. And he gives us greater and greater desires to live unto him. And again, all this comes through the instrumentation of the word of God, putting the truth into our hearts that God then blesses and causes to bear fruit. So hear me. This is personal application here. There will be no change, no growth in grace, no growth in holiness, apart from taking in, believing, meditating upon, and obeying the word of God. There will be no growth apart from that. 
I promise. I see this all the time as a minister. And, I, and I, I'm not calling anyone out here, but I see this all the time as a minister. Those who grow are those who devote themselves to the word. And not just reading it, but who earnestly want to understand it and who earnestly want to believe and submit to what they read. And it is always, to a man almost, those who take a very casual approach to the word of God, who remain stagnant and even may fall away over time. This is what I see. This is why everyone jokes whenever they come to me for some kind of pastoral counsel. You're going to tell me to pray and read my Bible more. Yep. (laughs) This is what God has given for your growth. I'll help you and I'll guide you. And hey, there are relevant texts maybe you didn't know were in there that you need to meditate upon and submit to. But at the end of the day, it's the word that's going to cause us to grow. Then that's why that God tells us through his word often to listen and take heed to what he said. So then to summarize this point, we see clearly that the word of God is God's appointed means of sanctification. Thirdly, still under the heading of powerful word, we now consider that the word is God's appointed means of preservation. So conversion, sanctification, and now preservation. And I could look at many passages of scripture right now, but I only have time for one, I think. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it's not a happy chapter, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And apparently, just looking at what Paul says here, (coughs) apparently there were many in that church who believed that since they had been baptized and partook of the Lord's Supper, that they could then live in any way that they wanted to and that everything was going to be okay. And to fight such wicked thinking, the apostle recounts to them how God led the Israelites out of Egypt and how they had received a foreshadow of baptism and a foreshadow of the Lord's Supper. But because of their unbelief and idolatry and sin, God struck many of them down in the wilderness. And then Paul comes to a conclusion in light of that. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 11 and 12, he says, Now these things happened to them, to the Israelites. These things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. God gives a warning to the Corinthians, doesn't he? He gives a warning here, and he gives it to them how? Through the writing of the apostle and through the Old Testament. That is, through Scripture. God gives them a warning. God warns the Corinthians here in 1 Corinthians 10 that if they do not repent, they will perish. God warned them that though many seem to be in the faith at first, that those who persist in their wickedness will be cut down and damned. And in giving this warning... Maybe you've never thought about it this way. God is preserving his elect. He's preserving his people by warning. Why? How do I say that? Because those who actually belong to him will listen to it. They will heed the warning. They will fear it. They'll hear it truly and act upon the warning and so be preserved unto salvation. Brothers and sisters, my point is that God's word preserves us. 
And it does so many times by warning us, don't fall away. There's no contradiction in the scriptures, right, in teaching us that a true believer cannot lose his salvation if he's actually been converted. And also the texts that say, make sure you don't fall away. There's no contradiction there. God is preserving us through the warnings to ensure that his elect will persevere to the end. That's why the warnings are there. God teaches us, go back to Christ, run back to Christ, repent, and so be preserved. God will ensure that those who truly belong to him will hear, fear, and heed his word, and so be saved. The word of God preserves us by warning us, but not just the warnings. All right, let's think about this positively. God gives us so many precious promises that preserve us and help us to run. God reminds us time and time again of his great blessings and rewards that also help us to continue following Christ. How often do we read in scripture of God holding out the splendor of heaven? A promise of eternal life to the one who perseveres to the end. That one day we will be without sin. And the fight, though it is raging now, will one day be over. And we will look back and say we have conquered through the blood of the Lamb. That helps. Does that not push us onward and so preserve our souls? He promises time and again that he will help us and give us grace to get through our trials if we will only call upon him in our time of need. And then based on his promise, we cry out to him and he comes to our aid and preserves our souls. He promises us that we will never walk alone so long as we humble ourselves under his mighty power. And so we are encouraged to then humble ourselves before him and ask him to help us. And then he does and so preserves us. And he promises us that it will all be worth it in the end if we will only continue taking one step at a time. And that's as if his fatherly hand is behind us with this promise, pushing us forward and so preserving our souls. More than that, consider the constant promise of our assurance of pardon and our assurance of salvation. God constantly reminds us that we can indeed continue on in the faith because our salvation ultimately does not rest upon us, but it rests in Christ. So if it rests upon Christ, surely I can continue going. And with his assurances of pardon in the word, he preserves our souls. All of these things preserve us and help us to persevere. And where are they found? In the word. In the word. So then the word is indeed God's appointed means of preserving us. But now we've seen the permanence and the power of the word. And now we come to the third heading, the sufficiency of the word. And I almost preached the whole sermon on this one. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. The sufficiency of the word. And when I say sufficiency, I I mean this. The word of God is all we need to be instructed in what to believe to be saved and how to live in order to please God in all areas of our life. The word is sufficient for the life of faith. And really, before I even get into a text, and we're going to look at 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 if you want to flip there. But really, this is just logical, isn't it? If the word is and does everything that we've seen so far, and just real quick, it is and it does, 
right? If the word is and does everything that I've said to you so far and shown from the scriptures, if it will never fade away, if it is powerful to convert sinners to Christ, if it sanctifies and teaches us how to please God, if it preserves our souls, then what else do we need in order to know God, be saved, and live a life that pleases him? What else then do we need to live the life of faith? What else then, corporately, do we need to be a fruitful and effective church? Nothing. But we don't rest on logic alone. The word of God bears this out. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, we read, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Here we go. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word of God says, or rather Paul says that the word of God makes the man of God, and by the way, that's a reference to the pastor, right? That's a pastor, makes the man of God complete and equipped for every good work. If the man of God has the Bible, he is complete. And what does complete mean? Lacking nothing. If something is complete, there's nothing else that you need. Right? That, that's how the word works. I'm not, this isn't just me. That's what the word means. If the man of God is complete, then he has all he needs. And what's he complete for? He's equipped for every good work. He's completely equipped for every good work. This means that there is nothing that God will call the pastor to do in his personal life or ministry that the pastor is not ready for so long as he has the word rightly understood. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, and I get it, but I'm not a pastor. So what does this have to do with me? Well, I'm glad you asked. Or we're going to pretend like you asked because I have a microphone and you don't. If this is true for the pastor, then it's true even more for everyone else. Why? Because the pastor's work is often more spiritually demanding. If I, as an elder, as one who is to give an example to the flock and lead you all in following Christ, if I am complete and fully equipped to do everything that God has called me to do in my personal life and ministry, then so is everybody else here. If we have the word rightly understood and proclaimed, then we don't need anything else. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy. He's saying that the word of God is sufficient. It teaches us and trains us in everything we need to know and do to live the life of faith. Brothers and sisters, we have the very word of God in our hands. We don't need man's ideas for church growth. We don't need strategies from CEOs. We don't need emotional manipulations. We we don't need trends or fads. We don't need anything. We are complete because we have the word. So all we need to do is believe and proclaim what God has said and instructed us in the book. That's it. 
We have an all-sufficient word from God. We have the word that is sufficient to convert sinners, sanctify saints, and preserve the elect. We have the word that is sufficient to show us how the church should govern itself. We have the word that is sufficient to show us how we are to worship God corporately and privately. We have the word that is sufficient to show us how to counsel one another. We have the word that is sufficient to keep us relevant in the 21st century because it speaks to all of life. We have the word that is sufficient to bring our children to faith in Christ and to keep them. We have the word that is sufficient and equips us to do every single thing that God desires us to do. We have God's very word and that is enough. This will change everything, by the way, if we actually believe this. So I must ask, do you believe this? Do you really, truly believe that the word of God is sufficient? Because hear me, people will say that they believe this. Churches will say it, and pastors will say it. And then they will contradict every word they've said by how they do things in the church and in their own personal lives. They'll look to all manner of worldly wisdom and man's ideas for what to do and how to live instead of looking to the word alone. Let me give you some examples. If someone says, to win people to Christ and grow the church, we need to do X. And if X is anything other than preach the word faithfully and go to the unbeliever with the word, then they are functionally denying the sufficiency of Scripture, even if in a theology test they would say they believe it. Or if someone says, you know, to keep people interested and engaged in the worship service, we need to X. And if X is anything other than give them the word of God, read, sung, prayed, preached, and seen in the sacraments, then they are functionally denying the sufficiency of Scripture. One final example, if someone says, to help people grow in the faith, we need to X. And if X is anything other than teaching them sound doctrine from the word and getting them more engaged with and submissive to the scriptures, then they do not believe in the sufficiency of the word of God. Brothers and sisters, please hear me. The word is enough. And it's time that the church as a whole believed it and acted like it. And by God's grace, we will be a church that believes and acts according to what God has said about his own word. And in light of that, we now come to our fourth and final heading. God's promise concerning his word. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11, we read this. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that comes from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God declares here that just as he sends rain and snow down to the earth in order to water the earth, and give life just as he sends down water for a purpose and that purpose is accomplished so also does he send out his word when the word of God goes out it goes out with a purpose from God 
when the word is proclaimed, God will not fail to bring about the purpose for which he gave that word. God's word will always accomplish whatever he desires it to accomplish. The word always does exactly what God intends it to do. As we saw last week, our God is sovereign, and he always accomplishes his purposes, and he has chosen to do so by his word. This is God's promise concerning his word. Here it is. It will always do something. It will always do something. Whether that's convert a sinner or harden him in his sin, the word will do something. Whether that's sanctify a saint or increase their guilt because they will not listen, the word will always do something. God promises it will always do something. It never does nothing. Brothers and sisters, this means that our preaching, our declaration of the word of God in public or private, written or spoken, whatever it may be, the declaration of the word is never in vain. God is always active when his word is proclaimed. He's always accomplishing his sovereign purposes when his word is proclaimed. So then, we ought to be devoted to the proclamation of the word and even more devoted in our own personal reception of it. God is always at work in it all, and he will never fail to bring about his purposes. Why? Because he didn't give his word in vain. Get this tattooed on your forehead. God doesn't waste his breath. And he breathed out his word. It will do what he intends it to do. So many people want to try to, to devise clever methods for the church. And this is because they don't, they don't believe what God actually says in this verse. If they did, then they wouldn't come up with the goofy stuff. Church, believe him. His word is never proclaimed in vain. I hope you see here that God calls us to use his means. And only his means. And just real quick, this shouldn't surprise us, should it? Does this not sound like something that God would do? Like this is, you ever read something in the Bible and you're like, that's a very God thing. Right? Like, based off what I've seen elsewhere in Scripture, I'm not surprised that this is how he did it. This is one of those things. God has ordained that he will use his word to accomplish his work in his church. And obviously, he's done this. He's ordered things this way. Why? So that he will receive all the glory. If this is how he does things, and it is, then at the end of the day, what are we forced to sit back as his, at his, as his people? We're forced to sit back and say, he did all of it. He did all of it. Well, how do you know that? Because I just told people what he already said. I just, I, he, it's in the book. I just read the book. I explained the book. That was it. Clearly, he did it. He did it this way so that he would receive all glory. Imagine this, especially if you're as optimistic about the long-term future as I am. God's going to conquer the nations of this world. How? Through words. That's amazing. Not through swords, not through politics, but through the word. Through sinners, redeemed sinners, telling people what he has said. That's how God takes over the world. And in ordering things this way, God demonstrates that the power of the church is in God and not in men. So that he receives all the glory. So then we will not attempt to rob God of his glory. 
but rather we will sit back and watch him work as we use the means of his word as he desires. So then, having seen that, let me just reiterate, we will be a church that is radically committed to making everything centered around the word, children's ministry, worship services, small groups, everything, outreach, everything that we do. Let's get the word to people, whether they're believers or unbelievers. Let's get the word to them. Everything we do will be guided by the word. Why? Because this is God's appointed means. But let me make this personal for each of us now before I end. It's really easy. I've been to enough Reformed conferences, and I've heard enough sermons like this. It is really easy for us to hear a sermon like this and be like, yeah, right? Like, we're not going to be like those other churches around here that do all that goofy nonsense. It's really easy to do that, right? And just be like super stoked, like, yeah, regulative principle, like our services, like they're not worldly, and our ministries are super word-oriented. Let me ask you this, though. Do you cherish the book personally? Do you love the book Can you say with a Puritan whose name I cannot remember, God, take my children from me before you take your word from me? Can you say that? Beloved, cherish the book. It is the very word of God. You've seen in this sermon what it is mighty to do. How God loves you enough to give you the book that converted you, sanctifies you, preserves you, and is sufficient for everything that you'll need. Love the book. It's the book that he gave to us for our benefit that we would know him. And apart from it, we have no saving light. Apart from it, we have no guidance. Apart from it, we are lost and groping in the dark forever. But we have it. But we have it. So love the book and study it. And don't just study it, but obey it and believe it. Don't seek to master the book. Seek to be mastered by it. Make it your most treasured possession and give thanks to God daily for it. And may God be pleased to grant that it would be so in our lives and in the ministry of this church. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word and how you are pleased to glorify yourself through it. And we trust that your word this morning has not gone out in vain. It will not return void to you, but it will accomplish all that you have intended it to accomplish. So Lord, we ask for your blessing upon the word that was preached. Let it take root in our hearts. Help us to be a church that corporately says we want to do only that which the word says. We want to rely upon God's power in the word. Help us to say that corporately, but God, as individuals, help us to earnestly cry out and say, I want this book, not the, not the paper and ink, but the truth that's in the book. I want it in my heart. I love it and I need it and I'm grateful for it. Put that in our hearts, Lord, I pray. Have mercy on us. And help us to honor you by honoring your word. We ask for this in Christ's name. Amen.